Hi everyone, I'm Mazelle, and this is the season finale of Dandelions. As you may have noticed, today we released not one, but two parts of an interview with HLS2L David Hicks. David is a man of deep faith, though ironically he was an atheist for a few years while at a Christian college studying to be a pastor. He learned to speak Mandarin after moving to Shanghai on a whim, and DJs for fun because in his words, there's something about getting people to dance. I have found that speaking to David about those things, or anything really that gives you a window into who he is and how he sees the world, to be an almost religious experience. Because talking with David isn't just a window. He makes you feel like you're in the house and have a seat at his dinner table. In this episode, David and I talk about all things faith, where it comes from, what it feels like to lose, and how it can again be found. During the second half of this episode, there are mentions of grooming and sexual abuse, which may be difficult for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You'll hear more from us in part two, but for now, I'm so excited for you to meet David. How's it going? It's going okay. It's a, it's a rainy day here, which is... A bummer, because I have a friend in town who I wanted to take on some hikes, but we're inside, so we're finding other ways to enjoy the day. How's your day going? My day has been uh, similarly, you know, no plant survives contact with life, as they say. Um, so COVID free, COVID COVID free, COVID Good. free. Thank goodness. Um, I think a question that I love to ask people, just to like, I think you can kind of get a sense of it's like a foundation to, to jump off to like any question or conversation is what was your childhood dinner table like growing up? And so I would love to hear if you could kind of transport us and teleport us into that world, what it looked like. Childhood. So are we talking like two years old? Cause that's a lot of me throwing food. If we're talking, <laughs> we're talking middle school, those ages. Yeah. I had a, uh, so I am the oldest of uh, two siblings. So the dinner table would be my mom, my dad, me, and my younger brother. It's like two years younger. Uh, yeah, having a dinner together as many nights as possible was very important. Um, so almost nightly meals together. My mom is a phenomenal cook, so we would be having delicious food. Um, I grew up in a quite religious family, which I think we'll probably get into later. And so there would usually be a time of like devotional is what we would call it. And where you kind of, you read like a verse from the Bible and a little reflection. And we talk that, about that. Like when you sit down, you get into the devotional. Yeah. We would like eat, eat our food. And then afterwards it'd be like, all right, who wants to read the devotional? We'd have a little book. Right. And so There'd be a little verse and then something for reflection, right? Like, what does it mean to love the kids at your school? And then our, my parents would try to be really intentional getting my brother and I talking about that. Usually, right, we didn't want to do this. We'd, we'd be trying to get away 
Um, like, how old are you at this point? Like, to, like, like sit down for dinner. It's like, it's like middle school. I don't know. I mean, this was this was growing up. It was this was actually something my parents were very deliberate on and have shared since that this was something that was important to them in parenting us is having some time for the family to gather each day and kind of, you know, talk about our days. It wasn't all serious, you know, spiritual stuff, but, but that was a component as well. Cause they just wanted that to be a part of our daily practice. Um, sure. so that was the way they did that. And was there a point in which like you started looking forward to it and, and, loving it or is it still kind of begrudging the whole way through begrudging the whole way through. <laughs> yeah never never really looked forward to it appreciate it now and that's something I would want to do with my own kids or a variation of that um but no always kind of looking forward to leaving the table and like watching tv or you know kids stuff amazing um faith and like devotionals were obviously a big part as if it was like a daily kind of ritual. Did faith play a big role in your life generally growing up? Um, yeah. So I grew up in a, a pretty religious family and this is our history, right? My, my great grandfather was a preacher and grandfather and you kind of go down, down the line. Um, and so I'm originally Canadian and in Canada, the Salvation Army is more, at least as far as I'm aware, more associated with an, being an actual church rather than a charity, which is what most people think of when you talk about the army in the States. Um, and so I grew up in that denomination going to church there. And it's very, uh, one of the things that's important in the army we call it the army. Um, it's not as intense as uh, the actual army. Sure. <laughs> but, um, you know, you it's like your faith should be borne out in the works that, and like what you're doing day to day. And so that just meant that faith was integral to what we were doing. A lot of, uh, you know, the Salvation Army does a lot of work with the homeless. And so that was something my family was pretty involved in growing up. Um, my first friend, a childhood friend, was a homeless kid. He and his mother came and lived with us uh, for a while. And this kid was my age. And yeah, I just remember getting to know him. And that would not have been an unusual experience in the context that I was in. But that is, I mean, that that line, my first friend was a homeless kid, it, you know, now it's kind of a weird anecdote, not weird, but like it's a it's an anecdote in a sense. Little Dave, you know, meeting someone who lives on the streets, obviously you didn't with your family. How did you, do you remember how you processed that and what that was like for you? That's a great question. Um, I don't. And, and to, to be honest, I mean, I use the word friend loosely um but also not performatively right it's not like oh this homeless kid was around me and so i'm gonna call him my friend for the story like there there was a, a relationship there but i you know i must have been six at the time oh you were a tiny i was pretty young yeah so i my memory of that is just that there was a fascination with like our things in our house like he really liked my toys and and i just remember like yeah you know, there was this possessiveness in me 
and it was it was hard in some ways, right? Because I'm a kid, I'm I want my things. These are my things. This is not yours. You're in my house, and so you know he'd be using my stuff, and I would uh, get upset. Um, and my parents would be like, you know, I was a source of real frustration for me, but also great conversations about what it means to share and to be, you know, considerate of others and other people's circumstances. Um, so it's not, not a great answer to your question. No, it is. It is a great answer because both in that and your answer to my, like, did you like devotional time question? You're not like pretending that this was some, you know, you came out of the womb wanting to like go befriend and give all of your stuff away or spend, you know, your, your, the evenings of your youth talking about biblical verses or devotionals. Like it's, it's a very human kind of response that I think, I don't know. I don't even know if I would give about things like that. I probably at the time was very not really happy about. Um, Mm, (laughs) And, and that now I I look back with like, you know, rose, rose tinted glasses. At what point did it turn from something that you kind of presented or there was some sort of internal pushback towards to something that you kind of embraced and it being like your faith? It being my faith. Um, so I would say I, I can't pinpoint a specific moment. I can kind of looking back, I can see various waves. So junior year of high school was a big moment in terms of faith because I started uh, getting engaged in that space. My family, when we came to the U.S., we'd stopped attending the Salvation Army for church. And so we weren't in spaces where, uh, you know, um, confronting homelessness was something happening directly at church um, in the same way that it had been when we were in Canada. But I still had some roots in there, right? This is my family heritage in, in a way. And so I started making those connections on my own uh, junior year of high school. And a friend and I started this, I guess you could call it a ministry that, that would um, basically take kids, other high school students from my mostly white suburb, and we would um, go into the city on Saturday mornings for, and this was about two years, uh, my junior and senior year. And we would just have lunch with the homeless and hang out for a few hours and build relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was a big moment for me because I started to have some really amazing experiences. And, And it wasn't just Christian kids from my church. It was also from, you know, my large public high school kids would join us. And so I had friends who were religious, friends who were not religious, other religions that or Christian, not religious, other religions. Um, and we were all together and there was a explicitly Christian backdrop to what we were doing. Um, but we were able to unify around something really cool. I found, and, and I'm not saying this, this is not strictly true of all people, but my experience has been that people who are engaged in religious communities um, there is a, a depth that could be brought out. There's, you know, if you're, if you're exploring questions like what's the meaning of life, um, or what does it mean for me to live a good life? What is that? Um, 
you can go places in conversation with people who are actively exploring that question in a religious community. It doesn't have to be Christian necessarily. I've had some some of my close friends, you know, hardcore atheists, um, but they are exploring those questions and that's what draws that out. So I, I loved that and I loved doing that with people from my school, um, from my church, and I wanted to do that professionally. So I... Um, what, what I went does that mean? College. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> like, well, I guess I'd be a pastor. Um, and I seriously, yeah, I was like, I want to be a pastor. And I loved philosophy, right? I uh, this is kind of it's kind of gross <laughs> looking back on it, but sixth grade, I was reading like Plato's dialogue. Oh my god, you're I such a like, gunner! It was Get oh, I was out. total gutter, right? It was like Get the weird out. gutter, yeah, gunning for no job. It's like it was like I was just so into so accurate, well, so into philosophy, and you know that was a great gateway to theology and and just absorbing this stuff. So you want to be a pastor? I want to be a pastor. Eighteen-year-old Dave wants to be a pastor. Yes. Next step. Christian, Christian college. college, off to Christian college. Off I had Christian never college. gone to a Christian school. You know, a lot of people who go to Christian college, their background is homeschooled or, you know, Christian private schools. Um, I was coming from a public high school that I loved um, and was like, okay, I want to get, yeah, I want to kind of move towards being a pastor. So I went to a Christian college, which at the time had a reputation for being kind of the most open-minded of all the Christian colleges. And, you know, there's I- There's like I should... reputations of these schools. <laughs> yeah, there <laughs> like, are. Does it work? There are. Yeah, there are. And there's, you know, there's tons of Christian schools and, and you really? have some crazy examples. Yeah, there. I'll, I'll try to avoid naming names. Sure, but, sure, sure. you know, there's, there's some schools where it's like you can't, men and women can't walk on the same sidewalk, right? And you're like, for me, that's, I'm in, I'm in these circles. I'm flabbergasted by stuff like that. And then you kind of have the more, and I should say that's more fringe, that example sure. I give. Um, so my best friend, uh, childhood best friend, we, we, um, he went to the school and he was like, you should come. Oh, wow. Well, we, we grew up together. So he knew he was going to go here. Cause was that had, a factor in your decision? It, yeah. I don't think I would have gone, but not for him. Um, and there were also people at my church here, uh, in, in Philadelphia, in the Philly area who, um, were just amazing people. And I, and, you know, I'm thinking of colleges, I'm asking them, where did you go? And my school, Gordon college kept coming up Hmm. and I was like, I don't know the school. I didn't know any Christian schools and my parents didn't, they, you know, they went to school in Canada. It was not the same as it is in the U S of like, I'm going to apply to 10 colleges and, you know, I know all about, and, you know, we're not a sports family. Like, I, I, there weren't many criteria that we were like picking. My parents just kind of university of Toronto, like kind of simple. This is local and we'll do that. Sure. So college was, I was kind of figuring it out, not first generation college student in my family, but I was figuring out what it looks like to have this consumeristic approach of like, where am I going to go? Um, and, and so you yeah, decide Gordon College. I decide Gordon College. So I go you, up to Gordon. You go up to Gordon. You <laughs> you rock up, you know, with your suitcase, your childhood best friend. And, yeah. and what's the next chapter? So, or page uh, in the chapter. Yeah. I, um, I had a hard time initially there. Um, I, 
uh, my friend likes to tell me that the childhood friend, he, uh, first day of orientation where one thing you do at the school, and this might be reflective, um, of the experience, but orientation is like a two week hiking trip through the mountains with oh, a small group. Fantastic. And then you like do some solo time at the end, reflection and journaling. Oh so my God. I went to the wrong the school. Mountain. Yeah. <laughs> it was a, it was a great experience. Yeah. I don't know if there's a way other schools can make that happen. I know other schools do do that, but, um, I, I'm like, I pulled my friend aside after this bus ride up to the mountains, first day of school. And I just start crying. And I'm like, I made the wrong choice. I should not have come here. Um, I what it what had happened is on this bus ride, I I had some I met some people who just were very different from me and different in the sense of I was all excited to talk philosophy and theology and this heady stuff. And and I was meeting people, at least on that bus ride, who I was not really connecting with, mm-hmm. and was like, what have I done? And that really happened. It was first. That first year of school, I'm, I go, I'm a philosophy major, I'm taking philosophy classes, and and I say this um, as humbly as I can, but this is how I felt at the time, was like, wow, Christians are dumb. And that that was how I felt. And What does that mean? Like, I wanted to talk about ideas about God and like faith and the Bible and these sorts of big things. And people just seemed really disinterested. And, you know, it's not that they, they also, they, we shared a faith, um, but they couldn't like quote, go there or they, or, or whatever I was doing um, was keeping us from going there. There was a barrier. And I perceived that barrier as symbolizing lack of depth lack of understanding. And I resented that. Right. And so I, by the end of my freshman year, I had left the faith and I would have considered myself atheist, pretty adamant atheist. And now I'm at a Christian college. um, And I don't want to be a pastor. Sorry. What does it even mean to like lose your faith? Like, yeah, <laughs> it sounds like a breakup on steroids, like identity crisis, existential, all blended together. And that's what it is. I, I think, honestly, <laughs> Great, honestly, cool. yeah, it's it's Great. intense. It's really intense because um, I wish more people appreciate it. It's like you can criticize faith all you want, um, but the reality is it's a it's a strong community and it is your identity. And so when you're talking to someone and trying to get them to challenge these thoughts. I think this is broadly true, right? Anyone, if whatever you see as like the salient characteristic of like makes you who you are for me, it's like this religious identity. Trying to take that on, it's intellect and like the intellectual dimension is just a part of it. So much mm-hmm. of it is community and identity and who am I? And so for me, leaving that was deeply painful and you know, I harbored a lot of feelings around the, uh, regarding the people around me at the time and how they responded to that. Because suddenly I'm, you know, I'm coming back to my home church. We had a pastor at the time who was uh, not a good pastor, not a nice person. And I had interned with him before I went to college because I wanted to see what it was like to be a pastor. Um, and he had been very nice to me mm-hmm. and very, you know, 
kind. And then I come back on like spring break and I have a lot of questions and I'm posing these questions and he's, uh, you know, quite upset with me and that relationship is severed. Um, Mm. There are two people I know of who have blocked me on Facebook. Both of them are former pastors who I've worked with because, you know, there's this severed relationship and that's really hard. Yeah, we can laugh about it, but that must have been devastating. It was, yeah. And I, this is the community I, I grew up in. And so suddenly my friends, you know, I have, I have great friends. I've been really fortunate with some amazing people in my life. But one of our binding glues was being able to talk about faith mm-hmm. and go deep on faith, right? And the conversation, you know, what's an example I can give here? Dating, right? Being like in high school and college and, you know, when we, I I won't pretend like I know what it's, what those conversations are outside of a religious community. But in my community, that conversation would be like this. Is this someone who, you know, you connect, okay, you know, all the normal stuff. Oh, they're pretty, oh, they're nice. These are good things. But a very important question would be like, is this someone who, um, you know, you think can draw you closer to God here? Like, what does that look like? Will they challenge you in ways you need to be challenged? Is this someone who, um, you know, loves God? What does that look like in their life? This would just be a, a natural dimension of a dating conversation. So what do you do when one of your friends stops being part of that. Right. Cause it, I can it, confirm that is not what dating looks like for, right. for, for young teens right? elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely so, not different. And, and so you start feeling these, these unspoken or sometimes spoken tensions mm-hmm. and it's just hard because I, I, at the time, you know, I was in it and I felt the tensions. I knew what we weren't asking each other anymore. And I could tell that there were my friends and, and the, people around me, the adults around me, there was the sense of, okay, how do we kind of get him back on the path, on the right path? Um, in this time, like you being at college, uh, you're questioning religion. What were you questioning about religion itself? And then what happened next in your religious journey, I guess? Yeah. So, uh, I remember exactly when it started, there was a you know, part of our core classes, you take an Old Testament class, you take a New Testament class. And I'm in this New Testament lecture hall. And the professor starts talking about the history of the Bible. And you're like, you know, Paul wrote four letters to the Corinthian church, right? And so in the New Testament, you have the book First Corinthians, which is one of the letters that Paul purportedly wrote to this church in Corinth. And then you have second Corinthians, which is another one of these letters. And the professor's like, there are four that were written. We have two. My mind goes to, okay, hold on. So if we were to find those other two letters, right? If there was some archeological dig and we found those letters, uh-huh. what, what does that mean? Because in the faith tradition as i understood it at the time we're saying the bible is like the word of god and that this is like you know a discrete text that is exactly what god wanted to tell people but now okay are we gonna really 
in all seriousness say, well, this other letter we just found later is not the word of God. Why? Because we didn't have it at the time the Bible was assembled. That seems silly. And, you know, so I, I start going down this hole around, what do I think about the Bible as a text? Is this a reliable text? And at the time I come to this conclusion, like, no, or not, at least not in the way, not in the way that I've been told to to understand and deal with this text. And then everything kind of falls from there, right? Okay, if you don't have the text, then how, what do you make of Jesus, right? It's like, this is the primary way that we would understand. From zero to 100 really fast. <laughs> really, it takes off. And, you know, as I'm asking questions, and, and this is where I say, I think it's important to make the distinction. I, I had intellectual questions for sure. And that was one of them. Um, but so much of it was just emotional. And I think we need to be more honest about that. I needed to be more honest about that. And I wasn't at the time, everything I was framing as intellectual, very noble, right? I'm this deep thinker here are my questions. Sure. Um, but really it was just anger and hurt and, those alienated feelings, right? And it's driving me away from this community. I remember just talking to different um, people, professors, classmates, and posing my questions, and they didn't really have thoughtful answers to, you know, that, that Bible question there as an example. And that felt alienating to you. It felt alienating, but I, I felt like, hold on, like you're, if in a professor context, you're this professor you're supposed to be the smart one here and you're not even, you haven't thought of this. I'm your student. I'm a student here and you know, you're, I'm you just did it again. This. What do you, you mean? Just, you went to the intellectual and not the feeling. Well, so, but this, yeah. Okay. Fair point. But I'm saying I'm starting to then feel like you're, you're not thoughtful about this. Mm -hmm. And, and so I'm making a, a judgment about, about them. And, you know, I look back now and say, wow, I made a lot of really unfair judgments of mm -hmm. people. Um, but I was, yeah, I was spiraling and I was intellectually spiraling, but also feeling this alienation and pretty quickly, yeah, I went from like firm faith and, you know, wanting to be this pastor to a pretty dark place of like, wow, I don't really have a faith. Actually, I don't believe there's a God at all. And I believe this is all not true nonsense and, you know, opiate of the masses type stuff. And, um, and I feel like I've lost a lot of friends or I've lost a lot of relational depth. And I'm at this school that I should not be at if I don't believe in the stuff that everyone around me you know, is striving to understand more and I don't want anything to do with it. And it was, it was really hard at the time, really tough place. Where did you kind of, like, how did you emerge from that? Uh, so that was my junior year of college. So um, I studied abroad at Oxford for a year and it was at Wycliffe Hall, which is like, a theology school um, there. And so I was studying with people who were brilliant from all over the world. And, you know, I wasn't taking theology classes. It was hosted at Wycliffe and I was taking, so I, in college, I studied philosophy, history, and English, right? Interesting, but all 
unemployable <laughs> majors. And, and so you went to law school. <laughs> so in law school, exactly. Yeah. Um, and um, so I'm at Oxford and I have these, I, you know, at the time, I'm still atheist. I'm still vocal about that. And I still harbor a lot of resentment. And I'm meeting very smart Christians, you know, people who take science seriously, um, people who are on their journey and have really been going after questions um, similar to what I had. So, you know, I, I have this memory of just being at lunch and sitting with some other students and bringing up all my questions, right? And, oh, well, what about this? And, the, you know, the Bible's nonsense because of this and da, da, da. And these are people who are actually studying very deeply, like, you know, biblical studies or they're dealing with the archaeological finds and what does this tell us? And and they're dealing with the text very seriously. And they're saying, yeah, this part, this is inconsistent with this part. What do we do with that? Here's some possible ways to think about that. So they basically, they accepted my questions. And actually, I remember really well, a guy who's become a friend of mine, getting very excited as I'm asking these questions, right? And he's like, yeah, that, yeah, isn't that, that is a big question. And had you thought about this? And he asked a question that's even worse than what I thought of. And I was like, oh no. And, you know, I'm, I kind of like see even more evidence. This is nonsense. And he's, and he's like, no, 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 no. Like you can still, this is reconcilable mm. with this faith for these reasons. One of the smartest guys I've ever met. And he's, and he has faith and doubt and he's holding both together and so for me, you know, I, I am posing the questions, the same questions I've been having, but they're being greeted with enthusiasm and with mm -hmm. energy, right. And curiosity rather than don't rock the boat or why are you doing this? And you were so, mirrored. yeah, I was mirrored and that was huge. Again, I mean, intellectually, I started kind of getting some answers. But when I think back on that season in my faith, it's the emotions that I remember. It's not, oh, I had this question and that question. Those felt very serious and earnest at the time. But my memory of it is predominantly emotional. And um, so I had this framework by the time I left Oxford where I, I saw how doubt could intersect with faith and how you could do both. You can ask questions and you can, um, you know, challenge orthodoxy, challenge the mainstream opinion in a way that is perfectly, perfectly reconcilable in my view with, you know, a robust religious faith. You're, I actually think that's kind of part, part of faith, an important part of faith when I meet other Christians. Um, yes, I guess that's a spoiler. I'm Christian now again, <laughs> but, um, you know, when I, when I meet other Christians who, who talk about not having doubts, I'm a little skeptical. I'm mm -hmm. like, well, why not? There's plenty that's really on the surface, difficult with this, not just on the surface, you go deeper, still difficult with this. So at all levels, there's difficulty. And if someone tells me they aren't wrestling with that or don't have doubts, I'm like, why, how, yeah, I think it 
one thing that you said there, so obviously, not obviously, I'm Jewish. And so the I was Christian, spoiler alert, I'm Christian again, to me is a fascinating kind of dance of that you, you know, it is because it's identity and belief. And so it's, it's, I guess, speaks to your earlier point about losing community in some way, about how when you lose it, you lose so much of your identity. Whereas like, if I can be an atheist Jew, like I've never, I never lose being Jewish. I can't. Right. Mm. Um, but I can have 80,000 spiritual journeys, but always have that foundational, you know, kind of core. And there's every denomination of Judaism or not denomination. It's like, you know, religious, Orthodox, blah, 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 um, that I can find a place in. But in your seasonal journey, I, I guess it, it seems more not siloed, but, um, like distinct, if that makes sense. Does distinct in, in what way? Like, where are you seeing that? Like more like a binary, like you're either in or you're out. Yeah. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Uh, or it's fair. It's a fair description of how I felt at the time. Yeah. That's what I mean. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel differently now, but definitely then I felt like, all right, I'm both feet in or both feet out. It's kind of either or. Um, what was your first interaction like with the legal system? Like where did the law enter your otherwise very philosophical kind of worldview? Yeah. So like, uh, many good philosophy students, I thought about law school and I, um, I just, yeah, I don't know. Wasn't, wasn't really <laughs> sure about it, but um, when I, and this is a very intense story, I will try to reduce, uh, appropriately, but I, so I get back from Oxford and as I was sharing, I feel like I start having an intellectual openness to faith mm. again, just intellectually, predominantly intellectually. And I'm kind of open-minded around what faith could look like. And I get back from studying abroad and essentially, I find out um, a friend tells me that they had been um, molested by our youth group leader growing up, who was kind of a fixture in the community. Everyone knew this guy. He had mentored generations of young guys, um, successful guy, worked in business school, executive at like a medical company and well-liked very fun. Um, this guy was a big part of my life. He, uh, had, you know, every week he was coming to my house. He mentored my younger brother. Um, he mentored all of my childhood friends and I get back from Oxford and I find out that he is a pedophile. Um, and we go to the police and tell the police what happened. And they say, well, we, can do two things. We can either get you a restraining order, very kind of low evidence threshold for that, easy to do. Um, or we're going to need to gather evidence because there's not enough to arrest this guy. So um, what do you want to do? And we decided to work with the police. So I was part of an undercover investigation against this guy oh um, for the summer going into my senior year of college. This person played like an instrumental role in your faith um, and your your experience with faith and religion. Why do you think that 
kind of reconciling or, or confronting this part of him didn't make you lose your faith? Yeah, a lot of people ask me that. Um, I have a lot of friends who have left, particularly my Catholic friends, right, who've left their church because of sexual abuse and just the disgust with these institutions, right? And I think that has not really made sense to me. I And it didn't at the time. That's not something I've come to over time. I've always kind of felt like institutions are deeply imperfect. And, um, you know, in the same way that I'm, I'm an American and I look at the government, I look at politics and I'm kind of disgusted most of the time. But that doesn't make me think, oh, America isn't real. It's not a real country because the politics are disgusting often. Um, I can, I'm able in the political space to, to make that distinction, right? Between seeing brokenness on display in the way politicians behave and, and still seeing certain things as being true or principles as being true, right? Like constitution or whatever, whatever you want to choose as principles that you admire. Um, I can still celebrate those and see the brokenness. And I feel the same with religion, you know, I, I don't think religion is it's institutionalization of like faith. That's what it is. Um, and so why would it be any less broken than other institutions? And so with a men mentor who's a pedophile, sure, you could write off the whole thing because of that. But part of me is like, that should be in my faith tradition, that's kind of expected. Not that's in particular of like, oh, if you're a Christian, <laughs> you're gonna get molested. That's that's not what I mean. But Danny. you know, yeah, no, but I mean, I mean, I mean that in the sense of it's expected that like there's brokenness in institutions, mm -hmm. and then because there's brokenness in people, right? That's what I then I perceive. I talked about seeing the spiritual layers of things earlier. That's kind of what I see. Is like there's people are good and bad. And so of course you're going to see that in an institution. And sometimes that's going to be on display in grotesque, awful ways, like, like a pedophile. Um, but to throw out the whole system of thinking because of that, it, it never, that never really occurred to me as like a, a rational or desirable response. Then what do you think it was about your experience, you know, at Gordon College that kind of did make you do that? Because that was your reaction instead of being like, oh, this is just a, a bad teacher or a bad, um, you know, class that I'm in, bad syllabus. Mm -hmm. After that, you know, those, those years, it was kind of, if I understood correctly. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really great question because it does seem inconsistent, doesn't it? Like that I wouldn't see that as not trying to be like, I got you because humans no. are inconsistent. You know? Yeah, no. I, but just, I, I think that the magic sauce is in the inconsistency. Yeah. Well, so I will, I will venture to say, I don't think it's inconsistent. I think the order of events was key for me. It's like the fact that I had first been introduced to Christians who could doubt. And then, you know, one at Intellectually, I'm more open, but I'm also starting to understand, oh, huh, things are complicated. You know, big insight, Dave. Wow, world's complicated. <laughs> and and then I'm 
uh, right after that experience faced with this experience with my mentor. And I think that I had the framework from Oxford to be like, okay, there's nuance here. Had, had it been reverse order, I think my life would be very different. Had, had I first, you know, when I was deep in my atheism and in that space, then found out that my church mentor, oh, and he's a pedophile. That would have just hardened things for me. And I've been like, see, it's a da, da, da. And would have deepened that. And then I don't think anything at Oxford could have changed me if it had happened after. But the order of events was key, I think. Thank you for listening to Dandelions, a podcast sponsored by student government at Harvard Law School. Dandelions is executive produced by Anjali Banjiri and me, Mazella Dasami. Produced by Sam Harris, Solange Dasami, and Danny Belgrad. The show is written by Sam Harris and edited by Danny Belgrad. Artwork designed by Georgia Salisbury. Special thanks to Christy Jobson, Sam Parker, Sarah DeLorme, Diego Alvarez, Noelle Graham, and Billy Wright. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Harvard Law School or Harvard University. Thanks so much for listening and see you again next time.